Military leadership. Many talk about it, write about it, but what makes a leader great? Is leadership innate? Is it learned, or does it exist in some unique combination of the innate and learned in all great leaders? To try to answer these questions, the MacArthur Memorial Leadership Podcast series will explore the education, personality, abilities, and legacies of great military leaders and the institutions and times that produced them. The following is an interview with U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel David Seary about the life and legacy of General Emory Upton. Lieutenant Colonel Seary has a master's degree in history and specializes in the American Civil War. He is a graduate of West Point and entered the armor branch of the U.S. Army and has served in operational assignments around the world, including Iraq, Kuwait, Bosnia, and Haiti. At the time of this interview, he is serving as an assistant professor of history at the United States Military Academy at West Point. Today we're with Lieutenant Colonel Seary at West Point. Um, we're going to be talking about Emory Upton. Uh, Emory Upton was a graduate of West Point, great kind of military leader and innovator, but someone who's not well known by a lot of people. Colonel Seary, could you tell us a little bit about Upton um, in his early days at West Point? Of course. Emory Upton was born in New York in 1839, and he grew up in a very religious, very strict family. When he was young, he went to Oberlin College when he was still a teenager for a couple of years and then transitioned to West Point. And uh, he entered West Point when he was 16 and graduated in 1861. And he was eighth out of a class of 45. He did very well at West Point. He didn't have a whole lot of demerits compared to many of his peers. Uh, he excelled in academics. And West Point was really what Emory Upton needed in his life based on his upbringing in a very strict family. He fell right into the discipline of West Point. He loved being in that sort of environment, very motivated, very driven to succeed. And when he graduated, he pretty much had his, uh, his pick of branches and, and chose artillery for a number of reasons. He graduated in 1861, in May of 1861, at a time that was very chaotic for the United States and the United States Military Academy in general. The Civil War had just broken out in April, and in addition to having just started the war, he had been dealing with the sectional rift that had preceded the war, and seeing brothers in arms, his comrades at West Point, being torn apart by this sectional rift, he was a staunch abolitionist, and one of the first abolitionists at West Point, one of the first really outspoken abolitionists, he once got into a fight with a Southern classmate who had made reference to him having relations uh, with an African-American woman. Whether it was true or not, it, it doesn't matter. The point is that Upton believed so much in his ideals in abolition and the, the, uh, the things he believed in that he was willing to duel a fellow classmate over this perceived wronging. And after that, everybody knew not to mess with Emory Upton, that he wouldn't take any nonsense from any, anybody. He was a very serious cadet. People have called him serious to the point of humorlessness. People could see him as uh, very overconfident, very pompous or arrogant sometimes, people described him as. But um, I think he was more driven. He was so focused on being the best officer that he could be that he really focused on achieving that goal. He lacked social skills. As a matter of fact, he was very uncomfortable being around people who weren't in the Army or who didn't understand the Army. 
And later on down the road, you can kind of see a little bit of this in that he chose solely to hang out with former comrades and other folks that were still in the military. When he graduated in 1861, he went directly to, uh, to artillery. He served right from the beginning of the war in the first Battle of Bull Run. He was General Taylor's aide-de-camp. He then commanded an artillery battery on the peninsula. He moved up to brigade command, artillery brigade command, during the Maryland campaign in 62. And then he transitioned over to a, a New York regiment and switched from artillery to commanding an infantry regiment, which was, it was an honor for him, and uh, he rose in rank. Uh, from there, he went on to infantry brigade command in the 6th in the Corps at Gettysburg Wilderness in Spotsylvania. He was wounded at Spotsylvania, and we can talk a little bit more about that because he came up with a, a very innovative way to attack during that battle. In May of 1864, he was promoted to Brigadier General of U.S. Volunteers and commanded in the Shenandoah. He commanded a division later on, and then late in the war, he transitioned to Alabama and Georgia and commanded a cavalry division. So interestingly, he commanded all three primary combat arms branches of the United States Army, artillery, infantry, and cavalry. In what ways would his time at West Point have prepared him to take on those roles? I mean, is it essentially that he just has these great leadership and technical skills to be able to master these different sorts of things? They would have trained in all three branches while he was at West Point. Right from the beginning, they, the drill that the cadets do trains them how to fight as infantrymen. They train in horsemanship at the academy, and, and there were horses on the academy grounds and stables, and they practiced riding all the time. They would have also trained uh, with the field artillery, and in their summer encampments, they would have had artillery set up and trained in artillery crew drills. Engineer tasks would have been trained. Cadets used to practice crossing the Hudson River with pontoon boats. And so all these different things that made an army officer an army officer were trained here at West Point. Now, that's not to say that there's not a whole lot of on-the-job training that goes on, especially once they get to the Civil War, because they were trained in, in smaller units. And at the outbreak of the Civil War, really only the Mexican War veterans had experience commanding or leading units at, at uh, regiment and brigade levels, because prior to that, most of the Army was stationed out west guarding the frontier against Indians. And so the training to command a larger unit like this, they would have had the, the theory and the ideas of it, and they would have read the history of how some of these larger units fought, for example, uh, Napoleon. But really, a lot of the experience came at the point of battle, where they're thrust into this and they have to really learn on the job. And the ones that did well excelled, and unfortunately the ones that didn't suffered casualties and, and died. And this is going to shape a lot of the things that Emory Upton is going to feel later on, especially his ideas about militia and volunteers and where officers should come from to lead those sorts of regiments. Many of the things he's going to write about and that he believes after the war are being shaped at, in his days as a cadet and his days as a young leader in battle. I know his time in the Civil War, there's a moment in 1864 at Spotsylvania where a lot of people say he figures out something pretty important that people forget in the trench warfare of World War I initially. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. At, at Spotsylvania, on the 10th of May in 1864, there were many trenches 
pretty in intricate trenches, especially when you consider that as the armies are fighting and as Grant is trying to maintain hold on Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia and trying to get around a flank and trying to get into Lee's rear so he can deliver a decisive blow, as these armies are, are moving into position, Lee was getting either through luck or through skill or whatever, he was always able to beat Grant to the next position and get there and dig in and fortify as quickly as he could. It was a race of life and death. And so they dug in at Spotsylvania and there was a position on the line called the Mule Shoe Salient. And it looked kind of like a, a horseshoe or a mule shoe, which is why it was called that. And the fighting had solidified again in 64. They were paying the butcher's bill. The armies were just grinding against each other, and death tolls were mounting, and casualties, and um, Emory Upton decided that he was going to handpick 12 regiments, and he was going to put them into a column, a dense column of, of soldiers, and have them attack a portion of the mule shoe salient, and, uh, salient and, and break through, and once they broke through, they were going to be supported uh, by other units coming to their aid, and it was going to catch the Confederates off guard and cause them to retreat, and, and it worked well. They did a recon, they planned, they got the, the regiments in position, they advanced with muskets uncapped, which, which meant that they weren't going to be able to fire. They didn't have the percussion cap on the, the musket. And so without that, the soldiers can't fire. And that was on purpose. So they wouldn't stop and try to fire and slow down the progress of the attack. He wanted the attack to be quick and forceful and really catch the Confederates off guard. And when they busted through, they were going to exploit to the left and right and, uh, and capture the trenches. It worked well, but unfortunately, the Confederates were able to react and mount a counterattack that slowed down Upton's penetration or caught him at the point of penetration, and the Union supporting units didn't carry on the, the plan, unfortunately. It, it worked very well, and it was innovative, but he wasn't able to capitalize on it like he an, had anticipated. But that isn't to detract from the idea that Upton's thinking, and he's really trying to come up with a new way of doing things. Although uh, some might say, well, Napoleon used the order mixed, where he mixed columns and lines and attacked in different ways, and he tried to exploit things like that. So Upton probably had a, a historic precedence that he was working on when he came up with that, but it was unique at that time in the Civil War to try something like that. And uh, it, it worked well for him, although it didn't win the battle, but they, they, they kept going. And then after that, he went went on and he commanded a cavalry unit down in Georgia. And he had, had an experience at the Battle of Columbia, or I'm sorry, Columbus, Georgia, where there were a couple bridges that they needed to cross in order to beat the Confederates. And uh, he was going to do a night attack with cavalry and supporting infantry. And uh, they managed to rush across the uh, the bridge and get into the Confederates' rear the infantry followed up, and the, the cavalry, once they realized that the infantry were having trouble because the Confederates had suddenly come to their senses and realized that they were under attack, the cavalry came back and helped seal off the attack from the rear, and they captured uh, about 1,200 prisoners at, at the cost of only 30 Union soldiers. And it was, it was a tremendous example of his dash and his, his aggressiveness that carried the day down in Columbus, Georgia. You said earlier that he was regarded while he was a cadet as relatively humorless, you know, very serious about what he was doing. How do other officers feel about him? Is he regarded as, as some you know, his contemporaries? Do they feel like he's a really brave guy? He, you know, we, we're glad he's on our side. Oh, yes. Um, or is he someone that nobody wants to hang out with? I think it, he was liked by his peers. His peers that, that understood him, that knew 
who he was. And an example is Henry DuPont. DuPont was one of his classmates at West Point. The two never really got along while he was at West Point. But later in life, they, they came to understand each other. And DuPont ended up being one of Upton's closest friends and was really close to him. People understood his brilliance. They understood that he was that, uh, his intellect, and, and they really came to appreciate him. I think as a cadet, they liked him, but they understood him. And really, with, with Upton, understanding him is, is key to liking him. What about the men under his command? Is he a popular commander? He was. Uh, he, was he was popular with the men, but keep in mind, anything that keeps the men alive will be popular with them. And, and having a, uh, a disciplinarian, while it may not always be popular, it will always be respected and admired because that's what will keep the soldiers alive in battle. And th- they knew that. And I think Upton really had good relationships with those who were under him. He fostered good relationships with, with his peers and with superiors. He worked hard later in his life. At, he was very close with Sherman when Sherman was the general-in-chief of the Army. When he was commandant of cadets at West Point, he spent a lot of time getting to know each of the cadets that were here, and he'd invite them all over to his house. And uh, it was always a very formal invitation, though. You know, Colonel Upton requests the pleasure of your company at his house for tea. And the topics they discussed were formal topics. But that's who Upton was. He was very military, on duty and off. Uh, A story about him is that he read voraciously, but it was always military topics. He didn't do anything that wasn't military. And so that goes to the idea of his single-minded focus on life, and uh, everything he did revolved around his profession. You bring us to our next point. Upton comes back to West Point after the Civil War in the 1870s. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about his influence on the academy at that point? Upton, when he came back as commandant of cadets, he was in charge of tactics for the Army, more or less, because this is the place where you train all the new officers. And Upton, during this period in his life, was just working on his new system of infantry tactics from about 1867 to about 1874, which overlaps with the period of time that he was Commandant of Cadets from 1870 to 1875. And so as he's working on these tactics, he has a test bed of all these students, all the cadets at the academy, that he can try these things out with. And all of his new ideas, his new way of getting soldiers into formation, his focus on heavier skirmish lines, all those things, he can train the cadets and he can have them them do that. And his tactics manual is going to end up being used at the academy for about 20 years, from 1871 until 1891. It, it's on the curriculum. He's an innovator, he's a thinker, and he constantly refines his ideas. And so he's always looking to see if it works well, and if it doesn't, what can we do to tweak it? How can we can we make this work? And he, he's constantly reviving or re- revising his tactical manual and giving it to other officers to think about. He did very well as Commandant of Cadets because he fit into the system, and he loved being here. He loved it as a cadet. He loved it as a Commandant. He was he was very, very tied to West Point and what it stood for and what he believed in. Unfortunately, he meets a rather tragic end. Could you tell us a little something about that? Emory Upton does have a tragic end, but it starts a little bit earlier than that. He married his wife, Emily Norwood Martin, and it was the happiest time in his life. He loved being married to her, but unfortunately they were only married about two years before she died. 
and it was it was very tragic. It was unexpected. They didn't know what was wrong with her, and they tried for a while to send her to different places to to heal and. Maybe the climate down south would be better for you. Maybe go to to uh, the Caribbean and and see if that helps your health. And it just never really got any better. And and his wife died in 1870. Just after that, he became commandant of cadets. So he's having to deal with the tragedy and the sorrow of losing his wife while taking on this new job, while working on his tactics manual, while all these things are happening, while working on a new book that he was writing about the armies of Asia and Europe. Spent two years touring the globe. He went to China, Japan, India, Europe, and looked at their armies to see how they did things and, and see what he could draw from those armies and what he could offer them. But anyway, so he's dealing with all this, along with the tragedy of his wife's death. And then as time goes on into the, the mid-1870s, he started developing headaches. And they progressively got worse and worse. And he really didn't know what was happening. He thought it was a sinus infection, and, and uh, he took a, a leave of absence to try to get some treatment for what he thought was a, a sinus condition that was bringing on these headaches. And it, it just never really got any better. And uh, he went to different doctors and tried different things. When he left West Point, he went to the Presidio in California and was uh, the commander of that post, and he thought maybe that climate would help him, and, and nothing did. And it got worse and worse for him to the point where he was losing function. His officers at one point invited him out to see a play they were putting on, and he went, and after the play was over, one of the officers said, well, what did you think of the play? And Upton couldn't remember seeing the play because the the pain in his head was so bad. He he stopped sleeping. He was beginning to get unresponsive and kind of paranoid. At one point, he thought he could hear blood rushing through his head, and it, and it was beginning to drive him crazy. He still maintained his friendships, although he was withdrawing into a tighter circle of friends. He maintained a lot of communication with his sister who took care of his house for, for quite some time. But then it, as it got worse and worse, his functions started degrading, his mental functions. And uh, eventually one day one of his subordinates came into his office and he said, uh, Colonel Upton, how are you doing? And he put his head down on his desk and started crying. And uh, the officer tried to, to get him talking about different things and change the subject and uh, look towards the future and that sort of thing. Then he left, and, and Upton went back to his room that night and tried to write a few letters. He wrote a letter to his sister, Sarah. Uh, he wrote a letter to um, to the chief of staff of the Army. And, and he, he was beginning to get worried that his ideas weren't taking hold. And then it got to the point where it was so bad that he wrote a note. He said, uh, I, Colonel Emory Upton, resigned my commission of the United States Army and signed it and uh, pulled out his, his pistol and shot himself in the head. It had just gotten too much for him to deal with. People now think that he was having possibly either brain cancer or an aneurysm of some sort. It was causing all those medical conditions. But really, it was a, a very sad, very tragic thing. They took his body and they sent it back to New York. And he had a huge crowd at his funeral. And some many, many very distinguished officers and friends were pallbearers for his funeral uh, when he was laid to rest. People couldn't understand why he did it because he had been such a driving force for change and reform in the Army. His tactics book, his book on the armies of, of Europe and, and Asia, and then finally, at the very end, he was writing a book called The Military Policy of the United States. And that was, his, that was going to be his, his crowning achievement. 
he had all these ideas on how the United States Army should look. And keep in mind, his whole life was devoted towards improving the Army, making everything better. The tactics uh, manual, that's at the smallest level. That's how can we make the Army better at the tactical level for the soldiers? How can we fight and win better? In the bigger picture, he was looking at Army systems. How can we make the Army systems better? How can we protect our soldiers by making it more cost-effective, save lives, shorter wars? The ultimate goal for Upton was to have an army that was so good that no one would want to fight it. And he could save soldiers' lives by having an army that was that good. And so he tried to think about how to do this. Uh, he didn't like the militia system or the volunteer system, um, although he, he wanted a national reserve, kind of like the, the Prussian landwehr. He thought all officers should be trained. He thought the worst thing that could happen was to have a state-appointed officer leading soldiers because that officer wouldn't have any training, and he thought that was a crime. More or less, he wanted officers that looked like him, West Point trained, properly educated, uh, with a lot of experience. He wanted to get away from civilian control of the military. There were a lot of things that happened during the Civil War where he thought uh, the civilians, especially Stanton, uh, were interfering with the Army to, to the Army's detriment. And so he wanted to get away from that. Essentially, he wanted the Prussian system for America. But now, what he didn't understand was that the Prussian system wouldn't work in America because the Prussian system didn't follow a lot of the American ideals. He didn't recognize that, that America was built on the, the volunteer and the militia ideal, even though you find in the American Revolution, in the American Civil War, that you do need regular troops. But he didn't understand the need for states to control a portion of, of the military. And he didn't understand the need for the U.S. government to have civilian control over the military. And in truth is, he probably did understand it, but he just was recommending something different. His interest, though, in kind of a Prussian model, mm -hmm. is this coming out of these victories over France and the Franco-Prussian War? Is he looking at them as like the new emerging military power over there? You know, we've based a lot on the French, but you know what, Napoleon's gone. We have this new German ascendancy. Mm -hmm. Let's let's tack our, our wagon train to the, the winners in this conflict. Is that why he's so interested in the way they're doing things? When he did his two-year tour around Europe, he spent some time with the Prussian army, and he saw how quickly they were able to achieve victory. But then there are a lot of things that the Prussians were doing that, that couldn't be replicated in America. Moltke and the staff system and studying war in that detail. But then you look at, at, at some things that the Prussians weren't perfect either. They had their share of troubles once they got to the battlefield. And even though they won, there are things that, that uh, if you look at it, could have been done better, even on, on their side. And so you think he's looking at the Prussian ideal, which they, they didn't even achieve themselves, but they, they did it better than the French or the Austrians or, or, or the Danish. That's kind of what he's thinking, and I think that's really what motivated him. Many of the things that he did recommend in his work military policy of the United States were eventually adopted. The three-battalion system in the regiments, the idea of interchangeable staff and line commands, the idea that uh, officers will be examined prior to, to having promotions. Many of the things he, that he recommended were eventually adopted, not all of them. And then the other important thing about Upton 
is that he was content, he was talked about years after his death. His ideas kept coming up and 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 had currency. And after the Spanish-American War, that's when his manuscript was finally published. Elihu Root, the Secretary of the Army um, or Secretary of War, got his manuscript, read it, had two officers make uh, make some very minor corrections and revisions, and then published it. And 12,000 copies uh, of that book were published in four separate printings. They talk about his ideas prior to and during World War I. Even prior to and during World War II in the 1940s, which is 60 years after his death, they're still bringing up his ideas. And some of the ideas were discounted. You know, we don't want to do this. We don't want to do this. This is this doesn't follow the American system. But still, the fact that he's part of the conversation is what's important because they'll they'll bring him up. They'll say, okay, he has this idea. It's a good idea. It won't work. How can we make? How can we take the good parts of this and make it work for us? And so I think that's really his legacy. Some people have said that he is the Army's version of Alfred Thayer Mahan. Um, is that something you would agree with? I mean, you see this great visionary and re- kind of this guy talking about reform that really causes these great changes to I, come down the road? I think he is. I think he is. And uh, you're exactly right. Alfred Thayer Mahan, another great, great military thinker. Halleck, before the Civil War, another great thinker. And and Upton, a lot of times people would criticize Upton and say, well, he, he hasn't come up with anything new. But he's synthesized it, he's codified it, he's kind of put it all together, and he was constantly trying to think and revise and, and create something new for the Army. And, and really, he is one of the few that is really, really thinking about how to solve the problems that the Army in, uh, faced and how to create a better system for soldiers in the future. And so I would, rank, I would definitely rank him up there as one of the great American military thinkers. Well, thank you, Colonel, for talking with us today. It's really been a pleasure, and we wish you all the best in your future career. Yeah, thanks very much. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, a military history museum and research center located in Norfolk, Virginia. If you have any comments or suggestions, please email amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.